Hello and welcome to Paddock Chat, a West Midlands group podcast created to keep local growers in the loop without having to leave the paddock. Each episode, we delve into topics on the farming horizon and help you in the search for the answers needed to confidently navigate the future ahead. So let's dive into today's episode. In this episode, I sit down with agronomist Nick Ayres to chat about all things agronomy in the Northern Ag region. Nick has been based in the region for quite a few years now and recently moved to working for himself at Greneff Specialty Ag, where he keeps himself very busy. So it's time to settle into the seat of your cedar and prepare for the wisdom of Nick in this episode of Paddock Chat. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and may not be wholly appropriate for your purposes or situation. We recommend that you seek appropriate professional advice before implementing actions based on the information provided in this podcast. And this podcast was recorded in April of 2023. Okay, cool. So thank you very much, Nick, for joining me on the podcast today. I'm going to start with my first question. What brought you to your current role? I suppose I ended up as an agronomist just because I grew up on a farm and have a passion for agriculture. I actually fell into the role harvesting for a farm around in Pindar. I heard of a job going and then sort of found myself starting a job. Oh, really? Uh, very few applications were submitted. So did you say you went to uni? Yep. So I studied uh, agriculture, agricultural science and chemistry. However, I didn't finish chemistry because by the end of my degree, they told me that I needed to do six-hour labs on a Friday. Oh, God. And if anyone's ever been anywhere near the tab on a Friday at uni, uh, it's very hard to get any work done on a Friday afternoon. That's six hours. Surely that's unnecessary. It's pretty brutal. Awesome. So you did recently start working for yourself. I just wanted to ask, how was the process of, of starting that business and how have you been finding things in the first few months? It's a bit of a whirlwind, to be honest. Um, I had no, absolutely no idea what it would look like. I've been working towards it for a number of years and sort of always had it on the back of my mind. And then last year, I suppose a few stars aligned and I'd recently gotten into doing a bit more R&D type stuff and just thought I just wanted to pursue that passion a little bit more. And then given a few stars aligned, recently had a, had a child and got another one on the way and, and just thought the time was right to give it a go. Oh, congratulations. I didn't know you had a second one due. Any, any minute now. Oh, right. Oh, how exciting. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. you must be busy. Busy, yes. Yeah. So you're, you can kind of expand that R&D. Did you do a bit of that through your previous role? Yes. I did a fair bit while I was working at Elders, and they were very supportive uh, of that. And I, I started basically getting to the point where I, I quite enjoyed generating data sets on topical issues and now I can generate as many data sets as I possibly want. Oh, that sounds really good. How do you find working with farmers and how do you work with farmers to identify their goals and develop their plans to achieve them? Everyone is different. Everyone is here for a different reason. Everyone is farming for a different reason. I very much see my role as I have to try and wade through the muddy waters and work out exactly why whoever it is is doing what they're doing, what it is they want to achieve. Um, sometimes that's easy, sometimes that's more hard and, and help them make decisions based on those goals because it's all well and good to tell someone what they should do but it's much harder to understand what someone actually wants to try and achieve and everyone is different. Every farming system is different. Everyone has 
very different intrinsic values. So I, I quite enjoy working with different systems, and I think that's why I'm so attracted to mixed enterprise farms. Having that capacity just to have a little bit of variability in, in, in management strategies opens a lot of doors, especially with some of the stuff that I'm, do, I'm doing, uh, especially around pastures and all that sort of stuff. I think, I think that's, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that, yeah. Yeah, that was good. Probably... And it's a lot about, I guess, having good people skills. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I suppose that's what it is, yeah. And I probably can't claim to have too much of that, but I, but I, quite, I quite like working with my clients and hopefully they like working with me, so that's good. Sounds like people stick around, so I think you're doing okay. It seems to make sense that you are keen to stick up, uh, stay up to date with R&D and I know in the episode you recorded with Callum that you've got your own bit of land that you like to test things out on as well. Does that kind of help you gain a better understanding of, of what is actually going on season to season and therefore help your clients better? Yes, I, I think I'll probably learn more from my clients than they learn from me, but I, I think it's probably more more of a case of it, it just helps me express my passion, do some things I love. You know, I can I grow far too much wheat to do anything useful with and far too little wheat to deliver to C, um, CBH. So it can't, can be painful at times, but no, there's, there's people out there that want, want to try some of this stuff. I've got guys that, you know, want to buy my wheat to put it in to pasta and Okay. chickpeas so they can make hummus and all these sorts of things. A few different things going on up there then. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite good fun. You've been in the northern ag region for quite a few years now. Is there anything that you've noticed in particular heading into this season that lots of people are talking about or asking about? When's it going to rain? The eternal question of this time of year. I'd say there's not hasn't been enough rain around to give us the confidence that we've had the last couple of years. 2019 is still very fresh on our mind. 2018 was a big year and we went in 2019 pretty confident and that hurt a lot. So we don't, no one really wants to repeat that. So we're very mindful of, of that recent history uh, event. And then where we've had a few showers, we're, we're probably a little bit more comfortable because we've got maybe got a couple of paddocks of canola away or we've had, had decent rain, got a good knockdown, but widespread, it's just been far too patchy to be particularly useful for the region. But the biggest thing for us up here, like it's it's not over till it's over because we can have a well beyond average break of the season with no rain up front. And because we have such warm winters, we can really turn it on through June, July. So for us, it's just a matter of how cold it gets more so than how wet it gets yeah. in June, July. If it, if it, if, as long as we get enough rain to get things going, yeah, we just want to make sure it doesn't get too cold is the, is the big thing. Yeah. As opposed to looking forward for this year, I mean, one of the best things now is fertiliser prices are much more acceptable. We can we can sort of afford to play the season a bit more and hit, hit those potentials. And realistically, we just sort of have to stick to our guns, make sure we've got, if we're going to start thinking about pulling up seeding, if it's looking dry late into May, then we want to make sure that we've got no more than 10 days of seeding left so that if something does show up on the radar, we can get stuck into it and actually make it happen. That's probably the biggest biggest trick when things look not super favourable. I think sometimes we get cold feet too quickly and we need to, sort of, need to sort of stick to our guns and make sure we're playing all our cards and giving everything the best chance it can for success. I think that's a good tip because I guess after those couple of good years, it might be a little bit more stressful, is it? Because they kind of people are kind of getting used to That's what I've heard. People have gotten used to being comfortable at this time of year and, and knowing there's some rain coming. So I think people seem yeah. to be getting a lot more nervous based on the last couple of years. Yeah, I wouldn't say more nervous. I'd say we're back to our norm. Um, yeah. 
the, the last couple of years, I suppose, looking at paddocks that we can get a knockdown in is always comforting. Not saying so much dust come off the bar is always comforting. But at the end of the day, like, it's still only the 20th of April today, so we're a good month, you know, nearly five weeks away from the average break of the season. The last couple of years have actually been fairly stressful for a lot of people because we did lose those two weeks of prep for seeding. Um, guys that are cropping hard, that they did lose two weeks of prep, so they got stuck into things without being ready. And that never really goes all that well. You, you make it work, but that takes it out of you. So two years of that in a row, I think there is a very subtle sigh of relief from everyone to think that they don't have to go hard just yet. But I, I definitely think that a bit of rain on the radar would, would certainly settle some nerves. Always, always thinking about the rain. Yes, eternal. I know you're pretty keen on Ceridella and legumes and all that jazz. Can you tell me a little bit about what makes it such a good fit for plenty of our paddocks in the Northern Ag, Northern Ag region? Well, legumes in general, more generally speaking, we, we, we need to get a little bit of systems outlook on, on what we're trying to achieve in, in a farming sector. You're, we're trying to grow protein. Uh, we're trying to accumulate protein, which we can then sell. And that is the commodity. The commodity is not the carbohydrates you pack with the, with the protein. We're selling different protein product, products, and whether it's wheat, a pulse, or uh, lamb, or wool, or, or beef, whatever it is, you're actually just accumulating product in your farming business, which you can then sell off farm. And for me, that protein price is a big thing because accumulating that protein has a systemic cost. It, it is where we're trying to make an extraction from a system. And there's different ways to accumulate that protein. In the cropping sector, we bring in a lot of nitrogen to try and help bolster that protein accumulation. Uh, that has innate costs with it to the system and to obviously your budget, bottom line. But that has allowed us to, to sell a commodity, a lot more of a commodity product, which actually turns over cash flow. When it comes to soils, a soil is doing exactly the same thing. The soil is trying to accumulate protein. And whether we're accumulating a complex protein or we're accumulating a nitrate, nitrogen, which we get from, say, urea, they both have different attributes and things that they'll, they'll do for the soil. And, and look, if you're adding nitrate, nitrogen to a soil, you're adding an extremely volatile product that will move with moisture. And the hydrology of our soils is something else altogether, but that is probably the single limiting, limiting factor for our soils. We add nitrate, nitrogen, and our hydrology does not actually allow us to use that nitrate, nitrogen that we've just added. Whereas if you accumulate proteins using a plant species, leguminous plant species, which will bring in protein, atmospheric protein and, and accumulate that in an organic matter, that can stabilise a organic protein source, an organic nitrogen source in a soil volume that is innately poor at retaining protein. So it is the only way to actually stabilise protein sources for whatever you're trying to do, whether it's growing beef, growing lamb, wool, crops, canola, wheat, that is the only way to actually stabilise some of these proteins in our soils and within our soils. If the end goal is selling protein, for me, I want to try and get as much protein as I possibly can in my soil to extract and sell as a commodity product. Systemically, we probably need to get better at extracting it. That's the limiting factor. And that looks at, means looking at hydrology. That means looking at land management practices. But the first step to getting anywhere from where we are now is making sure we have the capacity to accumulate that protein in our soil. And pulses and, le and legumes in general, they are the only things that are innately able enough to build protein, organic matter protein, that will work in our highly legible soils. In heavy soils, it's another story, but most of our wet belt yeah. is, is not quite like that. Yeah. So legumes have a massive fit in our sands. And if you want to make a sand function, 
it all comes down to the backbone of, of a legume. So Cerradella's are straight away a huge fit because the way that they grow, they're the only thing that can be as vigorous and as aggressive at growing and grow so much underground biomass in some of our very poor soils. And so straight away they have a fit. If we could make other things grow, that'd be great, but Cerradella's are the ones that just prefer those conditions. Yeah. And have you noticed there's been an increase in the way that people are are doing that in, in your region since you've been there? Or I guess there's still a lot of work to go, but have you noticed any? Massively. I think, you know, we went through probably 15, 20 years of pushing bag notch and pretty hard. And in the last couple of years where bag notch got very expensive, suddenly most people sit back and think, hold on a minute, what are we actually doing here? But it also gave us an opportunity to have a good look uh, at what we could do with organic nitrogen. And so some of the work I've been doing, looking at actually utilising this organic nitrogen, not only growing it, but then turning it into a cash crop, that whole side of things has probably become a little bit better over the last couple of years. We've, we've started to get a little bit more results. We've started to see this in the flesh. And some of the work that I've been doing, looking at that extraction potential, out of sense, if you can only hold 50 mils of water in a sand, it doesn't take long, especially in a high rainfall zone, to start to see leaching. So how do we actually capture that nitrogen that's there for us better and, and, and turn that into a cash commodity without actually losing it? And that's, I think, where we've, we've really seen some really cool things. Last year, we had a dry spell, pretty widespread dry spell around the district, and we could grow protein. Suddenly, people were saying that protein, it was all over the place, but they were saying that, we've, oh, we've got protein in paddocks. We've never had protein before. And because, that is solely because of the season. We've changed the way that hydrology functioned with a dry spell it actually gave the crops a chance to, to do their thing. Yeah. And so some of this stuff is really, really key, pivotal learning opportunities to then see how we can extract that information and utilise that and, and, and extrapolate that into other years where we, maybe we don't see a dry, such a dry spell, but what, how do we use those principles to try and improve what we're, what we're able to do? And I, I think that's, the, what, that's probably the, the cool thing to think about going forwards. Yeah, right, which is always, those things always kind of come about when the season's not exactly doing doing what you want to do. No, that's right. So I guess is the one good thing about when things aren't working. Yes. Finding yeah. ways to get around it. Yeah, exactly. If you're looking with your eyes shut, it's not, you're not going to achieve much. But as long as you, even when things turn to custard, you've got a lot to learn. So as long as you're looking and watching and trying to learn, you can actually get a lot out of it. And last year was a very good example. Yeah, awesome. Our Brewer Group kind of came together quite a few years ago now to tackle issues around soil water repellents. What have you been working on recently in this area and around soil health in general, which I guess ties into what you were just talking about, but other kind of other things you've been looking into? Soil water repellents is a very, uh, it's a bit of a pet topic of mine, but it's a very difficult subject to really hone in on. There's not a lot of work that gets done on it, actually understanding it. There's a group at Murdoch that are doing a fair bit of pretty awesome work on it. And they're basically the only real researchers that are making waves. But the big thing, I suppose, with non-wetting is understanding the, the principal causes of what, what's going on and what these waxy particles that are causing it are actually doing. The two things that we need to look at, it, obviously, it's the, the build-up of these waxes and then the removal of these waxes and the expression of these waxes. So what we do know is that drying the soil makes these waxes more hydrophobic. So anything that will dry the soil, so tillage while in a, in a dry soil, we know that from experience, if you go tilling a soil that's dry and non-wetting, only makes the non-wetting worse. That's what makes dry sowing in non-wetting sands so difficult to get a good result from is because we effectively till the immediate seed zone. So we generate 
an increased non-wetting expression around a seed that we just put in the ground, which is exactly what we don't want to do, even though we want to put this, get the crop away, get the seed away nice and early in warm soils. If we then can't wet the soil around the seed, we're going to have a really, really hard time to try and get that plant established. Not only that, when the plant does get established, it has this real messed up environment of half wet, half dry. It can't actually experience a true root zone because half its root zone is now dry. So it's straight away getting feedback from the soil saying your yield potential is limited from the get-go because you've only got 20, 30% of your soil volume available to you. That is one of the single biggest difficulties with it, especially with a dry setting program, uh, trying to get that right. So we know that drying doesn't, doesn't help and we also know letting soils get hot doesn't help. So back in the day when we used to run stock really hard, we'd graze these soils hard over summer and then we, we know we get hot Mediterranean summers so a bare, dry soil dries out from a little bit of tillage from hooven animals, and then we go and radiate it with some pretty strong sunlight. We can get soil temperatures up to 75, 80 degrees, and that will straight away double to even potentially even triple that expression of that non-wetting just from that heating effect, not let alone the drying effect. So that's the sort of things we know. So we know we want to keep the ground sheltered, covered, not tilled when it's dry, so now some of our practices, you know, retaining stubbles, they're really helping. The dry seeding one is still a sticking point, trying to make sure we're getting a crop established well without inhibiting that root zone around the seedling as it's germinating. That's a tricky one, and there's lots of things we can do. Like I was saying, these guys at Murdoch are probably really good to talk to about the mineralogy of the soils and why that mineralogy interacts with these particular non-wetting waxes, because some of them, some of these waxes are fine and some of them are particularly hydrophobic. And it's the hydrophobic, the way, the way they stick to the soil is of particular interest uh, and the way they don't stick to clay. So it's not necessarily about clay being more surface area to dilute it, it's just they don't stick to clay. They do not stick to clay as well as they do stick to silica sands. So that mineralogy actually plays quite an important role. And nutritionally speaking, like there's a, we need to make sure we've got the right solubilised cations in that solution of of soil water around those waxes to make sure that we can maximise the opportunity to solubilise those yeah. waxes and then wash them out of, out of the root zone. So they then end up getting washed through the profile, leaps through the profile and away from a troublesome area. They're probably some of the interesting ones and, you know, the way that soil flora plays a role, these amelioration programs that have gone on over, over time and how they all interact is, that, that is a big pet topic of mine because you, if you have significant non-wetting and you look at the hydraulic pathways through a soil volume, you can lose up to 80% of your soil volume just from it not being able to wet up. So that early sowing, a crop gets out and it only has access to 20% of the most profitable soil. So the topsoil, which is the most profitable, if 80% of it will not wet up, you've only got access to 20%. And that is a soil that holds moisture. That is a soil that holds nutrition. That is a soil that generates yield potential. And straight away, we can get rid of four-fifths of our yield potential. It is a pretty... Um, interesting discussion and, and really, really, really cool work being done on it. And hopefully I'm going to do a bit more work on it this year. I'm just waiting for that, some of that stuff to come through. And, and obviously there's still a lot of issues with it in our area. How do you think that farming businesses are expected to change over the coming years? Which is a very, very broad question, but if you've got just a couple of, couple of points. I would say we don't know what we don't know. If we want to designate our pathways of change going forwards right now all we're going to achieve is limiting our potential improvements so i'll refrain from being too decisive on that one but i think going forward there will be a lot of really interesting work 
being done around, especially around that sort of mineralogy sort of space and understanding soil function a lot more. There's, there's very little work that happens. You know, for me, like pasture production tells us a lot about how soils function and what we don't do in cropping, we can learn a lot from out of pastures because we have two different goals. The way I see it going forward, we certainly with people I deal with, we will treat our cropping, cropping paddocks a lot more like pastures in the way we understand them to try and get more out of our soils. I think we've gone too far one way and we're really focused on the grain production and we've forgotten about the plant production side of things, which that has implications for our soil sustainability. I think a lot more work done in the soil space. We will improve production. We will increase overall production and water efficiency, but it won't necessarily come from current methodologies. That's a really good point, actually, about not locking into trying to predict the future and yeah, locking yourself in too early. And I guess why it is important as well to keep up with with research and, and everything that's kind of coming out. Last question. This is a question I ask everyone. What keeps you interested in agriculture? I think all the questions. I'm really curious by nature. I really enjoy tackling problems and problem solving. There's so many unanswered questions and everything that we think we know we, all we do is continuously learn how we were wrong. <laughs> and I think that's the most fascinating thing about science is science has this amazing ability to continuously drive knowledge and learning. And one of the main things we keep learning is how we did it wrong. And I don't think that will ever change. I think we will only ever learn how we were, were doing it wrong. So everything we think we're doing right now is up for, up for debate. And I think that's what keeps me excited. So we can go forwards and we can question everything. We can be absolute about nothing, but we can drive huge amounts of productive change just from being open-minded and curious about how we can do things better. Yeah, that was a really good answer. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. Our members are an essential part of why we do what we do. For more information, including how to become a member, visit our website where you can sign up at any time. Links can be found in the show notes. See you next time for some more paddock chat. Local knowledge from a paddock near you.